You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The year is 2019. The movie Parasite. Everybody and welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, and this is a very special episode of Unspooled. Normally we are looking at the AFI's top 100 films of all time, but today we are taking a break and looking at a movie that really uh, transcended popular culture this year as it won the Best Picture Oscar. Uh, it's a film called Parasite. Uh, and this movie is actually in a crop of films that are very unique this year because it's an original film that made a lot of money. Over $200 million globally. And then you have a movie like Knives Out that made $300 million. And then even Little Women, who made $191 million. And there's always this talk about the idea being that we don't make enough original things. And here are really original voices that are taking the world or people's money uh, in a grand way. And I think that this movie is really unique because it's not a movie that is in English that is really taking America by storm. So I'm excited to talk to you about that today, Amy. But before we get into that, we're going to talk about last week's episode, which was The Sound of Music. A lot of people had a lot of thoughts about Sound of Music. Yeah, uh, people were, and it is fair, a little upset yes. that we didn't love it as much as them. And in the interest of love, because we are in a post-Valentine's week, mm -hmm. I am feeling extra romantic because uh, Garrett Wakauna on the Facebook page gave me a, a, a Valentine of Michael Shannon image, oh, which led to a nice. whole Facebook thread of Michael Michael Shannon images because they know that Michael Shannon is my favorite. Yes. Uh, actor of all time. So in that giving spirit, we have a lot of nice things that people wanted to say about Sound of Music to help balance us out. Yes, I totally agree that, you know, we need to applaud all the great things about this movie. And I think that we were pretty fair about it. I think we said that there is a lot to love about it, but there's a lot to be questioned as well. Yeah, I mean, well, here's one. Uh, JB Dahl at Trying to Let It Go said, you know, if as suggested by Amy, the purpose of the Sound of Music is to get women wet, which happens a lot in the film. <sighs> Then all I can say is mission accomplished because Christopher Plummer and Eleanor Parker gave me one hell of a bisexual awakening. And hashtag do re mi fa so not sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, Chelsea Gibbs made an interesting point that sometimes people reject this film because 
like It's a Wonderful Life, it was kind of forced on you as a kid to watch it. Um, but what she said that she liked was, I appreciated revisiting as an adult because it's family friendly, but it tackles two big taboos, politics and religion. And as a kid, I never understood why the captain would snap at Max for saying things like, what's going to happen is going to happen. Just make sure it doesn't happen to you. I don't know. A lot of this really resonated with me in our current climate. And I also really appreciated Reverend Mother's gentleness in telling Maria she could still serve God outside the Abbey and that Maria's childhood understanding of what God wanted her to do was something she could outgrow and still be a faithful person. I, I actually like a lot of that. Uh, that. Those are really great points of view. That is very sweet. And I did make fun of the nuns for singing How Do You Solve a Problem like Maria mm-hmm. as she's walking down the aisle, to which Mark Newfang said, my best friend from college actually used that as her processional on her wedding day, uh, without the words, of course. Well, you know, um, someone finally got my back here, uh, Dana Bourne. Uh, I said that I vacationed at the Von Trapp Family Lodge in Vermont, and apparently uh, she's a lifelong Vermonter, and she said, I loved uh, hearing this fact because rumor has it the Von Trapps settled in Stowe, Vermont because the mountains reminded them of Austria. But rumor has it. That's not uh, <laughs> totally true. I don't know. We don't know. I don't know why you couldn't figure that out, but we can't. And also, Art Larivieri points out something that we should have mentioned, which is that Nicholas Hammond, who is, plays Friedrich in the, in the film, he's the blonde of the ch- the children. He's the tall blonde one. He played Spider-Man in the 1970s Whoa. TV show. And also was recently seen on screens by us in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where he played the director, Sam Wanamaker. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. Um, and then somebody took us to task in a very big way. That's Rance Collins, who said, There is no world where Mary Poppins is superior to the sound of music. I also think it's important to talk about the way that Sound of Music uh, converges different eras of Hollywood. It's traditional, but it also takes it to the streets, out of the sound stages, in a way that studios didn't do until this period. And that's actually something we didn't talk about at all. I love that idea. It really, um, I mean, there are some beautiful sets in this movie, but they do go out. And we talked about that helicopter shot, you know, uh, and that opening. But um, I want to open that up to the audience. Maybe we'll have a little uh, Twitter poll about this or a Facebook poll. What is better, Sound of Music or Mary Poppins? I'm curious where people fall on this. Yeah, yeah. Let's make us put our vote down, man. I like it. Let's record. Do we have to throw in the new Mary Poppins sequel that you love so much? No. Okay. No, never, never, never. (laughs) Um, Well, so as we go in and start talking about Parasite, our call to action last week was we said, what other international foreign language films do you think should have won a Best Picture Oscar? And before we kick it to the calls, I want to say my personal one for these is – I wish in 1970, the Greek film Z had won the Oscar. Oh, wow. uh, Midnight Cowboy, a film that we talked about on the Mm -hmm. the show, won instead. I mean, it was a really tough year. Butch Cassidy was up there, Hello, Dolly, and A Thousand Days. But Z is one of the best all-time political thrillers. If you are a political thriller junkie and you have not seen Z, you're going to dig this one so much. Well, let's hear what everybody else had to say. My answer for a foreign language film that maybe should have won Best Oscar is El Norte which uh, came out in 1983. I would give my Oscar to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. It was a absolutely gorgeous film, took the world by storm, had incredible action sequences and a wonderful love story. It just swept the nation. My choice would be to substitute the Italian neo-realistic masterpiece Bicycle Thieves for the 1949 Best Picture Hamlet. I'd have to go with anything Kurosawa, but... Probably Seven Samurai. I would go with The Grand Illusion. It's a 1937 World War One film. My vote is for 2001's Brotherhood of the Wolf. It's a French movie. It has 
Vatican spies, a satanic cult, a lot of brothels, the French Revolution, kung fu fighting, an Iroquois Indian for some reason, and oh yeah, a monster roaming the French countryside attacking women and children. And if you don't believe me on any particular point, you just got to watch it. That's great. And you know what? I kind of wrote a couple of those down because I have not seen Grand Illusion um, or uh, Brotherhood of the Wolf. They sound like very interesting films. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to, uh, to to dive in a little bit more. I feel like I enjoy uh, I enjoy films, foreign films, but I definitely think that they fall to the bottom of my list when I'm catching up on things. British films, not so much, but a lot of uh, non-English speaking films definitely do. Um, all right, Amy, let's unspool it. Jessica, Wedongtai, Illinois, Chicago. Cousin Ben and Gintimo, Conan is a chum. The year is 2019. Donald Trump becomes the first sitting U.S. president to set foot in North Korea, though very little is accomplished. The U.K. parliament votes overwhelmingly to leave the EU during its tumultuous Brexit. The Amazon rainforest, the Notre Dame Cathedral, and all of Australia are subjected to devastating fires. Jesse Smollett and Felicity Huffman are embroiled in their own scandalous scandals. Donald Trump becomes the third president to be impeached, and scientists capture the first photographic evidence of a black hole. It is also the year that Parasite is released, winning the Palme d'Or, and then going on to win the 2020 Academy Award for Best Picture. You know, Amy, we normally play a clip, um, and obviously this movie is in Korean, so we won't understand what we're talking about, but I think it's nice to just lay down just um, a little bit of the opening scene where the families gathered around the table uh, talking about how they're raising money. I think you can hear from the intonation of their voices a little bit of how their characters are. And you may not know what they're saying, but just nice to kind of check in with their voices. Yeah, Parasite, who's in it? What's it about? Parasite, it is written and directed by Bong Joon-ho. And it is the story of two families, the Kims and the Parks. The Kim family is very, very poor. The Park family is very, very rich. These families wind up colliding when the Kim family quietly, under subterfuge, using different names, works their way into the Park family as their employees. And then things get really bloody. It is a super fun film. It, it blends all sorts of genres. It's a comedy. It's a thriller. There are moments that feel very horrific. And it's, above all, a really sharp, smart, wonderful social commentary on economic inequality in Korea and really economic inequality all around the world. Because as Bong Joon-ho said during his interview tour for the film, we all live in the country of capitalism. I love that we're talking about this film because here's a really interesting movie that kind of in many ways breaks the celluloid ceiling, I guess. Um, it's the first Korean film to win the Palme d'Or. It's the first foreign language film to win the Oscar. And this is a movie that would never be able to be on the AFI list based on how we understand it to be. But because it's kind of broken through all these boundaries, maybe there's a world in which it could be because the AFI list definitely rewards best picture winners. I mean, we know that to be true. And this kind of new path that the Academy Awards set in the last month kind of opens it up to maybe 
our best pictures now might include foreign films. Yeah, I mean, it is astonishing that we have made it 92 years of the Oscars without a foreign language film winning the best picture. When you think about the amazing foreign language films that have come out in the last 92 years, things that have changed cinema, things that have shaped the new direction of it, we have finally broken that barrier now with Parasite. And it's exciting because it means maybe the common wisdom is going to bend a little bit. Maybe all things are off. Maybe Bong Joon-ho just managed to successfully neg his way to an Oscar, you know, by going on this tour, doing, I mean, you know what it's like to get an Oscar, to try to go along that whole like yeah. Academy Award path. It's all shaking hands, getting wine, shaking hands, getting wine, shaking hands, getting wine. It's like running for president for six months. Like you were running for president of Hollywood for six months. And Bong Joon-ho did the whole thing while being able to say things like, oh, well, you know, the Oscars are not an international film festival. They're very local. And I think he negged his way to an Oscar, but I think in doing so, he made it exciting. But Doors are open. Let's even talk about it one step further removed and say that Bong Joon-ho is also somebody who doesn't speak English. Like everywhere he goes, he has a translator. So he's doing all of this with this level of um, separation between them, which is an interesting idea because this movie deals with that. That's like kind of these invisible lines that divide our culture. And It's true. Although he, my theory, my mm -hmm. quiet theory, is I think he actually speaks a fair amount and understands a lot of it, but right. he just wants to be very precise. And if he screws anything up, it's not him, it's the translator. I think he's kind of been like, you know, like me when I'm in Mexico, I can't really speak it that well, but right. I can understand a lot of what's being said around me. And I'm like, okay, all right. I, get I it. love it. I get it. I mean, because he, I mean, what I love about Bong Joon-ho is, you know, one thing he's talked a lot about is he grew up watching American movies. He grew right. up watching the films that we're talking about on this list. You know, he grew up watching all these old Hollywood classics because when he was a kid, the Korean War had happened. There were a lot of American soldiers who were still there and a lot of TV stations in South Korea where he grew up. They showed a lot of old American movies on a channel called AFKN, which was this TV channel that was for American troops in South Korea. And he would watch it at night and he got steeped in American culture and American movies and then grew up to make these films that are very Korean and yet have this, I don't know, genre pop culture sensibility that translates really well here at the same time. You even see this in his acceptance speech at the Oscars where he quotes Martin Scorsese, you know, what Martin Scorsese talked about how to make film and and. To see a foreign filmmaker be surrounded by people that he seemed to be a genuine fan of. I mean, he basically spent a moment going through each one of the uh, nominees and, and talking about how they influenced him. And, you know, for me, he's a contemporary of Quentin Tarantino and Edgar Wright, and they all seem to share a communal bond together. And I love that this guy who has been making these movies and with different levels of success. I, I feel like, you know, um, obviously I think the host is probably his most famous, but I would also say that Okja, which was on Netflix last year, got a lot of buzz around it. Um, oh, and not even the most famous would be Snowpiercer, I would imagine, because that's even being turned into a TV show. Yeah. Um, and Mother also, a film that he made in between those it was hugely critically successful. We gave it an award at LAFCA. And I mean, but to put the host in perspective of how popular it is, you know, I was in Korea this summer at the same time as Trump. You know, right. We went together. We're buddies. I love it. Yeah, but I went to North Korea right after he went to North Korea. And I was like, he set one foot in that country. Like you could see it. You're like, all right. Right, right. right. Congrats. But if you go um, to Seoul, there's a big river through the middle of Seoul that you see when you watch the host. That's a part of the film. Yeah. They've made a statue of that monster on oh, that river. Oh, wow. You know, so it's it, it's like... It's like going to Rocky and seeing the Rocky steps, but they have that in Seoul for the host monster because he is beloved there. And, you know, South Korea has taken a lot of pride in 
using pop culture much the way America did in the last century, you know, to export themselves and their natural identity, to get people to love South Korea through their music and their films. And he's one of the main people who's just really been smart about that. And what I love is when a movie like this gets a lot of popular acceptance. And, you know, even though the Oscars is very much, you know, an American award show, it starts to let people explore culture that they wouldn't normally explore. What else has he done? What else is out there in Korean cinema? I've read so many think pieces on, you know, the world of Korean cinema. And believe me, I'm no expert in that at all, but I like that idea that people are open to it. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. And I really want to talk about this movie, but I want to talk about just something from afar, which is I think many people still haven't seen this movie. And if you haven't seen this movie, definitely see this movie. Um, it's out on all the streaming platforms right now. And I believe a reason why people haven't seen this movie is because of the subtitles. And that's not everybody. And I know that some people don't have issues with that, but I think a large group of people find themselves like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, you know, maybe there's things that will get lost in translation. Maybe there are things I won't understand. I, I find myself too busy reading instead of watching all these kind of common complaints. I actually do this, um, texting thing where you can text me questions and I have a little unspooled community on that. And I ask everybody, have you seen Parasite? And do you have an issue with subtitles? And overwhelmingly, and this is in our unspooled group, no one had seen Parasite, which I was blown away by. And and then on top of it, people are like, I don't mind it. And one person put it best. It was like, I hate subtitles for the first five minutes of any movie I'm watching. And then I forget about it and I get so into it. And this is a movie that you said it earlier is very comedic. And it comes through in the subtitles in a really beautiful way. Like, I mean, it makes me laugh. I feel like I get all the nuances, but it, it is a little bit of a one-inch stumbling block for many people to kind of get over. Yeah, which is what Bong himself said when he won the award at the Golden Globes. Wow, amazing. Unbelievable. Yeah, I'm foreign language filmmaker, so I have a translator here. Please understand. No. <laughs> Good. 자막 서브타이틀의 장벽을 장벽도 아니죠 한 1인치 정도 되는 그 장벽을 뛰어넘으면 여러분들이 훨씬 더 많은 영화를 즐길 수 있습니다. Once you overcome the one-inch tall barrier of subtitles, you will be introduced to so many more amazing films. Just being nominated along with fellow amazing international filmmakers was a huge honor. 
I wanted to play just that part too because it cracks me up that he so clearly says Almodovar and yeah. she doesn't translate that. Um, but no, but in our Facebook group this week, there was also a really interesting conversation about subtitles that was started by Jessica P. And she said, you know, I really want to watch Parasite. I really want to get into foreign language films in general, but I do struggle with subtitles. Does anybody have tips? And what I loved about this conversation is a lot of people jumped in with their tips and they said, you know, the number one thing to me is practice. Like you just keep practicing. The more you watch films with subtitles, the better you get at reading it. But also kind of appreciate that it does make it a little harder. You know, James Spurrier said what he likes about watching foreign language films is it, may, it makes it impossible for him to like wash dishes or fold the laundry. Like you have, you have to, to really pay attention, pay attention and that he loves that because in a time where it's harder to focus, that makes it better. And Samantha McBride also had the tip that if you are watching on, say, like Netflix, they will let you adjust the size of the subtitles a lot of the time. Oh, so wow. you can make them bigger if it is a problem for you. But well, I love that. It was like a lovely practical solving group. You know, I also found some more comments like this on my texting app thing where people are saying that you even find some nuance. You uh, are able to hear or, I guess, read things that you wouldn't normally be able to hear because it's obscured by background noise. And I, I often find that, you know, I do my other podcast, How Did This Get Made? And on that show, I oftentimes will watch these movies in subtitles in a way to keep myself awake because I'm watching them late at night and I can't fall asleep if I'm reading. Um, and it does help me kind of embrace the movie. But the thing I realized a lot, and I want to ask you about how you read subtitles, it's almost as if you start to create a voice for your own characters. I mean, you're hearing their voices, but you're reading it yourself. I mean, how do you experience subtitles? I mean, it's a it's a tricky thing. I It's so natural to me now, but I was thinking about it as I was watching this and going like, oh, this is odd. I, I feel like I know these characters' voices, but it's not their voice. It's It's my voice doing an impression of them in a way. Yeah, I wonder if that is part of why, you know, we saw things happen with like the Parasite group where a lot of times the actors went unrecognized right. themselves. You know, the movie sweeps so yes. many giant awards. And one of the reasons that like a lot of the people didn't notice the actors themselves is because we're acting for them in our heads. We're like not even listening so much to how what they're saying or how they're saying it or their intonation or their delivery or the fact that Jessica, the younger sister, who's kind of like very clever and manipulative. Mm -hmm. That she's putting on all these different voices and accents. So, yes. you know, she's acting all of these roles that we don't really pay attention to because we're focused on the subtitle. Well, I don't think that we can even get in some of that nuance. Like when she pretends to be the um, the secretary or the head of the organization the, that's going to – the maids and the, the maid. drivers. Yeah, they were – you know, they comment. They say, oh, my gosh, you know, she is so good at doing these voices. But I can't get that nuance. But yet I feel like her performance is – a part of what I'm enjoying too. Like I, I love her performance. I, I, I think it's uh, one of my favorite in the entire film. Um, so you are, it's weird because if you sort of peel it back, I can't say like, well, I'm just acting and they don't do anything. It's like, no, they're kind of informing me. It's, it's a very engaging process. And in a way it, I think it makes you get a lot more out of the movie, you know, and watching this movie again, I just, I love it so much. And I was noticing little details, and I think that's the other thing about subtitles is like it may take two times for you to get all the little nuances um, because you are splitting your focus. You're reading, you're looking, and especially if you're a slow reader. I mean, that's another thing too. I can read quickly. I know you read quickly. It's like it's challenging to kind of keep up with everything. Um, it's but true. It, I mean, I watch subtitles on a lot of stuff that's American Yeah, because – 
I have very bad hearing. Mm-hmm. And so it helps me listen better. Like I, I totally miss agree. a lot of stuff. And the only times that I turn off subtitles on American stuff are just when it's a comedy because I feel like it ruins the punchline because the subtitle right. for the comedy comes up and I'll read it before they get to the funny <laughs> part. And I'm like, I would get so bummed out right. that I missed like the cool rhythm of the joke. I mean, I read my subtitles on my Peloton all the time. I'm getting it. I got to hear what they're saying. You know, if you haven't really jumped into the subtitle game, I think this is a great film to start with because it does have all these different elements. It's so kind of easily told and it makes sense because I'm realizing all these movies that we're talking about on this show, they're such simple ideas so well executed. Like this is a very simple movie that's so beautifully shot, so beautifully acted. There's so much symbolism, amazing camera work, great performances, but it's if you were to tell this story, it's it's a very gettable story. It's not it's not like um, you know, oh well, you, there's flashbacks and over here you have to get this and that. It's it's not like Little Women, you know, where you don't know what era you're in. Oh come on, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's so relatable. I yeah. mean, because how this film starts off is you have the Kim family who are incredibly poor, and the first shot you see that really establishes them in themselves is you have this pan down from the street to the basement below. You know, they live in this half subterranean basement where they can see the drunk people peeing on their window upstairs and you pan down and you realize that this family is doing their first kind of scheming hack job they're trying to figure out how to get free wi-fi because they lost the free wi-fi in their house which is instantly relatable yeah like oh that's all i ever do is try to scheme free wi-fi and they find it like at a local like cafe or a pizza place right but they have to sit by the toilet to get it so it's like you're willing to sit by the toilet to get the wi-fi but this is how this family has to live right now because being by there helps them figure out if they're going to get a job and their job is just folding pizza boxes And you have this imagery right away that Bong Joon-ho uses to kind of set the tone of their lives. They get exterminated. You know, Mm -hmm. an exterminator comes by and gasses their entire apartment, ruins their pizza boxes in a way. You're sort of like, people should not be eating pizza boxes out of it. But they're in this basement floor, moving a lot on their hands and feet. You know, he makes, he really draws the point out that they're having to live a life that is not quite human. It doesn't quite have the dignity. They are essentially cockroaches, right? They are staying alive underneath the surface. Um, And I think that this idea of establishing a family that is like this, that is so relatable, but yet so forgotten in our society, right? They are below, they are, you know, they are making our society work. Who makes our pizza boxes? Who cares? You know, we're not thinking about that, you know? Uh, And, but they're the people who function in the background. This whole movie is about that. Like, when you are drunk and pissing on the street, not that that's something that we all do, but you are pissing in front of somebody's window. My first New York City apartment, that was my window. Really? I you had lived, an apartment like that? I lived in an apartment in New York City where it was a sliding glass door on the first floor, um, and people would come and piss and puke outside my window, and I would be up in my little bed listening to that all night long. It was disgusting. It was just like you could never open the window because – it would be dog shit, it would piss or whatever. And I remember hearing those sounds and and I had it better than the people on the basement floor because there was a vent and it would just go down, like at least they're pissing into a vent, but the vent would go down to the bottom people on the bottom floor who had no even daylight. I had obscured daylight. And in New York City, you know, we're all living in these little boxes and sometimes, or at least two of the apartments I had, they faced a brick wall. You're not getting, you're getting like, sunlight by proxy like if you know so you're not getting anything in and it's a culture that we all live in it's like well that's what's affordable i i 
Would I pick that uh, if I could afford something better? No, that's what I could afford and that was it. And I was lucky like, oh, from 12 to two, it's actually kind of bright in here. But that idea, I think is something that's so relatable. And I, I don't know, I just love that when we meet them, they are not unlike us, right? No, not at all. And 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 you see, I mean, he's doing these subtle choices here where the family has this long conversation, like, do they tell the peeing man to stop peeing? Mm-hmm. You know, and none of them finally speak up. And the person who does speak up is a college student who feels like he has the authority that they don't to well, like yell at this man and get him to stop peeing. And it's this guy who comes in and gives the family this scholar's rock and ends up changing their lives. But here's what I'll say. I feel like they don't tell that person to stop peeing because they have no self-respect in that moment. They are down on their luck and they are, they've not given up the fight, but they are, they don't have anything because later on in the film, when- When they have money, they're able to tell them to stop peeing. Yes, but there's nothing has changed. It's not like they moved up to a better apartment, but their attitude about who they are, and that's something that we'll track throughout this conversation, like the idea that, you know, they are moving up in society and then they start to look at people below them like they're, you know, that they're worse than them. And it's this whole idea like we are constantly putting people beneath us, right? Like, well, they're not, I'm not like them. I'm not like them. And it was so interesting. I love that juxtaposition of that first scene yeah. where they have no energy to to say it. They have no, they're not going to close the windows. You know, they, they're really, not that they don't respect themselves, but they have no, it, it doesn't make a difference. Like they, they, they're, they're without hope. And then you're right. This hope comes in by a richer a friend. And it's an interesting moment here. There's a rich friend coming over, bringing the scholar stone to them. Yeah. And where, I mean, this is where I really started to hyper identify with the film is because, you know, the job that he brings to them is like, Hey, be a tutor for this rich kid. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you know this about me, but I did that for a lot of years. Oh, when I really? I moved to LA. I was a tutor for rich kids. Probably for like four or five years. Like when I I was doing that in between being an intern at the LA Weekly and I did it all through, definitely all through getting my master's at USC. It was the best living I could make. It was like tutoring rich kids in the SAT, tutoring rich kids in their college applications, tutoring rich college kids at USC themselves, like how to turn in better assignments. Like tutoring rich kids basically paid for all of my education, all of my rent for like five years. That's amazing. That's also what uh, Bong Joon-ho did as well. He was a tutor as well. It is such a strange way to make a living. Like, I, I'm glad I did it because mm-hmm. you actually learn a lot when you're a teacher for the SAT, for example. Right. Like, you're always like – it made me really sharp in grammar to be teaching it to other people. But you are aware that I would be walking into these mansions, you know, here in Los right. Angeles. Like, you can imagine, like, the mansions of the rich oh, kids. Yeah. You'd be walking into there. You'd maybe know who their dad was or what their mom did or something. And you feel like you have to dress up to do this job. You're very aware of how much you don't fit in, like – I was on food stamps and you would just see like the kitchens that were full of avocados and fresh fruit and the kids who were being served organic stuff all day. And like, I couldn't even imagine living like that. And I would feel so, I would feel a little jealous, honestly, and angry and be like, why wasn't I born into something like this? Well, and it's funny because I would even argue that the family that they ingratiate themselves into has that feeling about people as well. Like they're not exactly where they want to be either. No, you know, it's a cycle that continues to go. And like I was saying, like, you never get out of it, you know? And, and I think the, the mother of the, of the rich family, uh, the Park family, she, you know, is very, you know, uh, in love with like Western culture, you know, oh, it's not going to, the tent won't leak because we got it from the United States and she'll slip in 
these American um, phrases, which I did some research and like that is a sign of a very affluent Korean person that be able to have a mastery of the English language. Like that is, you know, again, you know, showing that. And that's why like um, our, our heroes in this movie, the, the, uh, the Kim family, like they also kind of take on those Western ideas and, and kind of create a world in their lives are about how these people work for Western families because in her mind, the Western family is the best. And yeah, I, I love that. Yeah, they take her weakness and her potential and they use it against her. They yeah. weaponize it. I mean, like Ki Jong, you know, who they renamed Jessica. Like the mother renames two of the two of the Kim families with American names. You know, mm-hmm. She names the son Kevin. She renames the daughter Jessica. And Jessica immediately, she just sees this woman and senses her up and knows that she should say like, I went to Illinois State University. Right. You know, my family's in Chicago. And she knows exactly what buttons to push because – this woman is also incredibly insecure. And I mean, I'm kind of fascinated by this character of the mom. I love the mom. She's maybe my favorite character. Oh, she's fascinating to me because when we first meet her, she's passed out on that table. Later on, when Mr. Park comes home, she's passed out on the couch. You know, and what is going on there? And I I know that they're going to expand this Parasite world uh, for an HBO miniseries, which I'm very excited about. And and, uh, uh, Bong said that he had backstories for all these characters and he wasn't able to get into them like and i love that idea that we might kind of find out more what's going on there yeah because we're first introduced to the mom as by learning that she's young and simple yeah you know so you're like did she was she not a like a poorer person who married this rich guy does she because she seems to very much tiptoe around him like is this going to make him mad will this make him happy and she's very young to be having kids that age well i mean that seems like it and and yeah, her whole tenterhook situation. I just, I think that performer, that actress, Cho Yo Jong, she's so funny. The way that she uh, makes use of physical space when yes. people touch someone or when someone gets too close to her, how she jumps back a little bit oh startled. Her eyes are so big. And she manages to be this kind of cute, scared animal who's also ridiculous, also snobby at the same time. I mean, I love the scene where they find the underwear in the car and she puts on the glove to touch the underwear. And then through her shock of something, she takes the glove that's been dirty with the underwear and puts it on her face. It's like there's so much great little <laughs> comedy moments. I want to just go back, though, and say, but what I think about both of these families is there's no villain here. They're both ultimately at the heart of this, like good, honest people trying their best. Like the mom is trying to get the best people for her kids to do the art therapy, to, you know, take care of her daughter's studies, to get the best tent, to do the best birthday party. Like, you know, they're not even a nemesis because I don't think they're villains. They, that's their life. They're, they're treating our family, you know, the the Kim family, keep on calling them our family. They're treating the Kim family very kind. You know, they're not, they're not abusive to them, you know. And the Kim family is also trying to do their best. And I don't think of them as manipulators or liars. They're trying to take advantage of this opportunity. They are literally, and I love how you see their evolution through food, trying to just make enough money to eat. You know, it's not like yeah, they're going out gambling. Eating. They're yeah, they're they're just simply trying to get it. Like they there's they're forced behind this wall and they're trying to get out from behind yeah. it. And you're right. I love how you do see their food get slightly better and better each time. You know, they're so hungry at the beginning yeah. when they're folding pizza boxes. Then they have a fairly decent breakfast setup. They go out to eat to a restaurant. They There's go to a, a driver's buffet. You see yeah. them go to the pizza place where they used to work yes. and kind of just like order the pizza and not be that nice to the woman who works there anymore and how much power they have to be able to have money like that. Well, just, you see them grilling meat at their house. It's such an amazing thing. I want to, before we go too far away from this, I want to go back to Scholarstone because 
I think this is, it plays such a significant part in the film, right? It's brought over by their rich friend. And it's this weird kind of token. And I, I wanted to kind of understand the scholar stone a little bit more. And, you know, in Korean culture, um, you know, we know that this is uh, basically a stone that you'd find like a proper stone and you would write quotes from scholars on them. People would collect them. Um, but this stone, you know, what do you think this stone does? I mean, does this stone bring good luck to them? Does it, you know, is this stone an albatross around their neck? Like, what do you, what do you, what is, symbolically, what do you think this stone does? I mean, the sun just keeps saying over and over again, it's so metaphorical, yeah. you know, like just straight up for the beginning. It's almost like he could just turn to the screen and be like, it's so metaphorical, by the way, just so you know, this stone here is a metaphor because it becomes not just like, the cornerstone of their ambition, you know, this thing that motivates them. You see the mom cleaning it dutifully, like yes. making sure the stone is happy, but it becomes literally the weapon that's used against them at the end, you know, a weapon that nearly kills somebody in the family. It's interesting because I've read articles and I've, I've thought about it a lot. Like, well, the stone represents, it's supposed to bring them wealth, right? And that's why it was given to them. So is the stone a shortcut? And the idea being like, if you take shortcuts in life, you're bound to, you know, be hurt, you know, like, but the stone also does this thing where it rises up during the flood. It rises up into, you know, the boy's hand and he's holding onto it. It's a called out to him. And then that becomes the thing that kills him. Like this idea of, of goods or uh, material things, like material things will kill you. Like, I mean, there's another idea you can look at it like that. Like if you, if you worship at an altar of a thing, it is bound to, you know, to let you down to, to physically. Yeah, it's like, like a monkey's paw. Yeah, no, I mean, there's some, I mean, and, and it's something very interesting about this, this stone because we see it being scrubbed and, and the minute it comes into their life, their life changes and for the better. And they can't let well enough alone. They can't just let the sun be the tutor. Well, they, they have to let, yeah. you know, you have to keep on upgrading it and upgrading it and upgrading it and upgrading it. Like they, they get almost too, uh, enamored by the wealth. Well, and I think maybe, you know, there's this turning point in the middle of it where they have everything they want. You know, everybody mm -hmm. has a job. Everybody's doing well. You have that really lovely pan through the house where the camera watches all as the Kim family quietly has their family life within the Park family's house, mm -hmm. you know, patting each other on the ass, stroking each other's ear when nobody's looking, showing that they love each other and that they're related inside of this family that doesn't know they're related at all and thinks they're all strangers. And right after you have this happy, happy sequence where you see it just working for everyone and everyone's doing good, you go back to the house, the drunk guy's back, he's peeing again, and what the young brother does is he grabs that rock and he's going to use that rock as a weapon. Yeah. And he doesn't, but he almost does. And I th I feel like that's this turning point where the where you see the rock get weaponized as something they might use. They almost want to use their power now as violent. They want to use it as a weapon. And they do use it as a weapon against the secret family in the ba in the basement. Right. And so it's like when they start just not appreciating it for themselves, but using it as a tool against people. Although in well, a way they've been doing that the whole time. Because like you said, they're not manipulative, but they get that poor lady fired by poisoning her with peach fuzz. Well, I guess they're you're right. Yeah, no, they, they and you're right. Everybody yeah. else fired. Well, I guess, you know what? Maybe I should take that back and go, they are trying to, like, I think the first instinct, which is just to be the tutor, is the right move. And then they start to really scheme. And it's when they start to disregard other people. Like, that's the other thing, too. It's like, they, I mean, they are essentially going back to that opening. They are disregarded people 
the economy class of society, right? Like they are the people that are doing the work behind the scenes for most, you know, the jobs that no one else wants to do. They are those people. And the minute they can get out of that class, they try to do that to other people. And I think that that's this interesting idea that we, going back to this idea, like we're always on this ladder, this constant ladder. And that's why I think there's so many things in this movie about literally like on the stairs, down yeah. below the stairs, above the house. Like it literally There's is so upstairs, much downstairs. Motion, yeah. Downward motion, so much downward motion, so much camera going downstairs and stairs and stairs. And the Pushing that woman down the stairs or kicking her yeah. down the stairs and then another level of stairs. You know, it's like it, yeah, it hiding under tables. It's very much about being yeah. lower. And yet, you know, I feel like there's this division within the Kim family themselves. And what I love about the Kim family is they seem so united. You know, here they have a Friday night. They have the rich people's house to themselves. And they're just drinking and hanging out. Like, their favorite people to hang out with is each other. Yeah. And yet, there is this separation even within them because the two younger Kims, the brother and sister, they're able to intimidate the Park family because they are the tutors. They know more than the, than the parents do. You know, right. they come in and they're able to be like, let me tell you what to do. Listen to me. Don't talk to this, especially Jessica, who's so yeah. imperious. Well, I mean, Jessica basically by, like shuts down her mom when she comes to go deliver the food to the room. Exactly. But like Jessica realizes the power that you have in this family by not acting obsequious, mm-hmm. you know, that you have to control. And yet that doesn't work for their parents because their parents aren't in a position to do that. They're the chauffeur and they're the housemaid and they can't talk back. You know, they're automatically considered on a different class than their own children. And I think that is really interesting. And you get the family talking about, you know, who could fit into this house and who couldn't. Jessica could fit into this house. There is a world where a Jessica could have married into this or kind of imperiused her way into belonging. But it's too late for her dad and it's too late for her mom. And the movie seems to know clear on they won't – they can never be accepted in there as who they are. They can't get rid of the smell. They can't right? get rid of the smell. And and that idea, I mean, that that smell is something that is physically shown in the movie. And I would argue probably the only weak part of the movie, uh, towards the end, they really kind of push the smell thing to a point where like, you know, I think they, they need to show it, you know, like, uh, but, um, but I love that metaphor of like, they can't, like, no matter what clothes they put on, no matter what they do, they are still going to smell. They are still going to not be of this ilk. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. I feel like one of my favorite shots is so still, but it's when the family is hidden underneath the table, and it's the dad and his two kids, and they're hidden there, and the family has just come home suddenly. And... Not only are, like, the rich couple pretending to be poor as, like, a sex game. They're, like, put on. I wish you had the cheap panties. Oh, I wish I had drugs. Do you have drugs? And they're pretending to be poor as a way of getting their rocks off. Yeah. 
the dad is also listening to them insult his smell in front of his kids. I and mean, there's that's this the most humiliation there. That's the moment. That's the moment that the movie takes a turn for that character where it is going to break. We don't know when, but it, that's it. From because it is a humiliating thing. Like he is there, and and it's also in this moment of like such pure intimacy. Like I mean, this idea that like they're spying on their life. Like they're in there on the other side of it. They're the hired help, in, in, even though there's statuses in that. But in that one moment, they're in the room, in the most vulnerable moment of these people's lives. You know, and it's, it's you know, this, it's not like, it's not necessarily, a, it's a funny scene, actually. It's a, but it's also so, so grossly uncomfortable to, to just feel like them having to hear this, like who they are. And, and, and it's a moment that they actually talk, not even badly about them, but kind of, make fun of them like you know talk behind their back because they're not like that to their face they're very polite to them but it kind of reveals the true nature of of what they actually think exactly and you already know that the dad Sung Kang Ho who was amazing oh amazing amazing we gave him um, the best actor award at LAFCA actually oh wow because we adore him well and Bong Joon-ho said that if he wasn't able to do this film he wouldn't have made this movie because they've worked together he's his dude he's his dude from the host he's his dude but even before the family comes home, you know, they're all drunk. They're all hanging out on the mm-hmm. couch. And the mother, who I think she is the clearest headed about all of this. You know, like mm-hmm. you notice that you, when they're back home drinking beer, when they have a little bit more money, everybody has upgraded to Sapporo, like the foreigner, oh, more yeah. expensive yeah. beer, except the mother. The mother's like, I'm still drinking our normal Korean beer. And they don't say anything about it. But you just have this sense of the mom being like, I'm not going to get too above myself here. And so she's talking. Right. She's not buying into... The fantasy where exactly. everybody else is, they're imagining it's, themselves like, what could we do? How could yeah. I get here? I'm gonna marry I'm gonna her. Marry that daughter, yeah. which no, like you just yeah. know that nobody's gonna let that happen. But I mean, even but, if, but even that idea too, yeah. just like him wanting to marry her, it's not even a real thing because it seems like he's copying his friend who is rich, who is in love with that daughter. So mm-hmm. he's like, well, I am now going to be in love with that daughter. It, it's such, it's not even a real sensation. Everything is a disguise or a level of I'm trying to be more than what I am. And I think, you know, I think that's what the Park family is doing too. Everyone's trying so hard to show something that, that they are not. Yeah. Even the young crazy kid is like pretending he's a crazy artist, at least according to the yeah. sister that he's like somehow right. stopping and looking at the clouds yes. and being like, I'm special. He's, we don't I mean, even, he's like six. But we don't but, even get to see that. But the idea that yeah. he is like, got his parents wrapped around his finger like that. Yeah. Yeah. But anyways, in that family scene where they're all drinking, the mom says to the dad, she's like, you know, you know that if they turn on the lights, you're going to scatter like a cockroach. Mm. And he's so offended. And they almost make it look like he might yell at her or hit yes. her well, yeah. before they start laughing. And it's not, you know, 10 minutes later where that's exactly what's happening. He's hiding under that table like a cockroach. Well, and she just nails it. And you know how, how deeply that must hurt him. I mean, and again, we talked about this idea that I was saying early on that they're cockroaches. They literally put their bodies in positions throughout this whole movie to be like bugs. And I think this movie is, it's set in a reality, but I think it's a heightened reality too, because they really are pushing a lot of little moments. And, but this idea that like that five people could be under a table and you wouldn't notice them, but you buy it and you buy it in this film. And, but I think what it is, is like, you're seeing these humans as, as bugs. They are, they are, they are animals. Like they are these animals, not even animals, insects. Exactly. And you like know, like the bug that he flicked off the table in the beginning of the movie. You know, he's he 
it starts with that. Like this idea that he's like, oh, this bug, keep the windows open. Let's kill these bugs. Like, and, and, and he is yet a bug in society because he's living under, you know, everything is, it's, it's, I love it. It's just like, I just love that idea. And, you know, to talk about the economics that Bong Joon-ho was really looking at and the politics here, you know, Bong Joon-ho himself has a really interesting story. Like, he's from a fairly well-off family in mm-hmm. Korea. You know, his um, mother's grandfather was this really famous novelist who wound up after they divided North Korea from South Korea on the North Korean side and just having to build, like, rebuild his literary career over there. But in South Korea... Their family was okay. Like they say that when he, when Bong Joon-ho was a kid, he would always bring home his poorer classmates to dinner. You know, and he had an eye out for the fact that his family was a little bit more comfortable than everybody else. And yet he got really fascinated with culture and politics because you kind of had to at this time. You know, when he goes to college in the late 80s and in the early 90s, you know, this is a point in Korea where there are massive social protests against the government that had been installed, you know, since the Korean War ended. And if you're on his campus, there's like tear gas everywhere in his memories of it. You know, every student was just radicalized. He said like it was you would he still would smell like the smell of tear gas in his dreams because it was just everywhere. It was in your nose, it was in your eyes, and it was just nauseating and stinging and hot. And so to be young at that moment was to care about politics and to be aware of them. And he was already completely in love with film. You know, he would sell donuts at his school cafeteria in order to save up money to get his first camera. And he started to think really early on about like how to synergize his love of film with caring about politics, which is what he's basically done his entire career. You know, even the host, like the host gets set up because of American soldiers who are there and in their ignorance create and launch this monster that destroys Seoul. And he's always been trying to like bury these ideas. You know, Okja is so much about giant corporations and factory farming and Snowpiercer being this really little literal metaphor for income inequality. I mean, there's so many parallels. I mean, the host too, it's like, like that creature kills Kang Ho's daughter. You know, there's a lot of similarities in in the endings and, and the themes that he's always appreciating. He says, you know, I read an article with him where he said, like, I love people who fight for, you know, for a better future and and for hope. But, you know, that's not why you make movies. You make movies to, like, affect people and play into these, these fears. So I, I like that he is a proponent of change in the real world, but in film – to prey upon those real base fears. I mean, that's it's a universal theme, which is again why this movie is winning all these awards and 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 kind of received so well because it's this is identifiable to everybody. Everyone's dealing with these same core four issues. Well, very much, and yet at the same time, you know, it's so easy to be like, and now he's done it, and he's the hero, mm-hmm. and everything's fine. But I think he is aware, you know, that for artists to do what he wants to do is always going to be a little bit dangerous you know his grandfather's his books were like banned because he was writing in north korea like his whole childhood you know you couldn't even get them from libraries um they would redact his name when his books were cited in books and journals and when he himself became you know a famous filmmaker as recently as like 2017 he was supposedly put on a thing that they were calling the arts blacklist because the conservative government in south korea at the time they thought that his films were they, – they highlighted what they called governmental incompetence. Mm-hmm. They said that they were left-wing and they said that they spread a lot of messages that the government didn't want. And so they put him kind of quietly on this list where they cut off Bong Joon-ho from government subsidies and tried, you know, to not celebrate him as much as we would imagine wow. that they were. And so 
that's three years ago. And luckily for him, he knows that he's in a position where he can get funding now on a global scale. He doesn't need the government to give him money. But imagine how he must feel about younger filmmakers coming up after them and making sure they can still say what they need to say. You know, you always have this person who opens the door for the next people, right? Because it's like, if you prove that something is profitable, someone will invest in something else to hopefully, at the end of the day, just make a profit from it. Like the art is secondary, but like profit is first and foremost. And I think that that's the best thing he can bring to it is the success. And I think that from, you know, Snowpiercer and Okja and uh, and the host, and I know that you said Mother's Good, but those those three seem to me like the ones that have made the most kind of impact stateside. Like that helps, you know, other people try to find the next Bong Joon-ho. Like, I mean, that's, you know, Neon Pictures, I think has a great track record of like supporting really interesting artistic voices. Yeah, it's really true. And I think, you know, as relatable as Parasite is to us, mm-hmm. you know, I think if you were Korean, you would be seeing criticisms in it that we aren't even that aware of. And it's been interesting yes. to read about them. You know, when you know that the government has had an issue with Bong Joon-ho, and if you were Korean, you would notice things like, say, the park father refusing to shake people's hands and thinking they're smelly. That is an actual thing that they caught the president of Korea, who was recently impeached, doing. A, a supporter reached out to shake her hand, and she just quietly put her hand behind her back so she wouldn't have to touch her. And I feel like when you know how deliberate Bong Joon-ho is, you know that he's doing that on purpose. Or even this whole thing about making fake college credentials – you know, the Felicity Huffman of it all, yeah, that is shared over there because the same government that had the impeached president, they got in trouble because some of the people in that in in the government were making fake diplomas for their own children, and this fake diploma scandal has been a huge thing over there too. Wow. And so he's putting that in here to tie it all together and you know give this very polite, subtle middle finger that we're not even seeing. I love that. I didn't realize that. You know that the idea of forging the Oxford letter is something that is unique to us reading the subtitles because it's different in actual Korean. Um, he basically uses uh, a friend of his, uh, Darcy Paquette, on all of his movies. He's an American living in Korea. Um, he created a whole website on Korean film. He's a cinephile and he's married to a Korean woman. And oh, he... I've met him. Oh, did you? Okay. I just realized I met him when I was in Korea at a dinner this week or oh, last summer. Yeah, so basically, he's really he... cool. Yeah, so he said basically he's able to help Bong figure out like what is something that an audience outside of Korea would, you know, understand, you know, wouldn't understand. And for example, like um, there's a, a program there called Kai Talk. It's, uh, it's their version of WhatsApp. So they say WhatsApp in the subtitle, not Kai Talk. Uh, Ramdan is something that is different in, in Korea. It's a different dish that they talk about. Um, and it was Seoul National University. That was the documents that he forged, not Oxford. You know, so I love this idea that it's not drastically different. It's not Americanizing it, but it is globalizing it. Like, how do you make it a little bit more palatable? You know, it's like, and I think that some people feel like, well, what are the, well, I get a subtitled film, are the cultural differences? And I love the fact that he is aware enough to be like, let me just like, so, you know, if you saw Kai talk, it does, especially in the first scene, it's going to put you a little bit like, well, what's, what am I, but WhatsApp, and it doesn't, it's not like uh, Facebook, you know, but it's like, it just, it just, I think, um, is a smart way of looking at this film, and, and it does just bring it home, because I think everyone thinks, oh, Oxford, yes, of course, Oxford, yes. Yeah, I mean, that to me is like the perfect example of good translation. You know, mm-hmm. good translation isn't just like, well, here is your word-for-word thing that you said. It's getting inside the mentality of it. You know, it's getting inside... All the sticky stuff that you can't even really articulate. Yeah. Because I think with Bong Joon-ho, 
it's all the sticky stuff. Even the Ramdan that you mentioned, when he was been asked in interviews about the Ramdan itself and like what that meant to him, he has a whole message. You know, oh, when yeah. you see in the film that Ramdan is a combination of ramen noodles and udon noodles, but he also made it so much more. Like, let's hear him talk about it. <laughs> So even the rich kid, you know, he's still a kid in the end, and that's why he loves this this dish. But the mom can't accept the fact that she, her her son would eat such a cheap dish, and so she has to she has to add a, a topping fit for the rich. And that's something that I invented. People usually don't add sirloin to that dish. Um, but now it seems like a lot of people are trying it out. That's <laughs> What's so amazing about this film, and this goes back to the Ramdan, is this film is embraced, especially by Hollywood, which is the Park family, right? For the most part, like Mario Lopez going, oh man, this is the best movie. Like, and no offense to Mario Lopez, but Mario Lopez is the Park family. And and it's an interesting thing, like, uh, to embrace that idea. Like, oh, okay, like, do who do you see? Like, does Mario Lopez look at himself as the Park family or the Kim family? I think we all look at ourselves as the Kim family, right? I think that that's part of it. Um, but to go back to the Ramdan, and this is kind of pulling it all together, I think, I hope, is he also said that he loved this sirloin on the Ramdan because it was sort of like the rich people enjoying something that like the poor people would eat, right? And he, like this embracing of like, oh, we'll, we'll eat dirty food. And I, I couldn't think, I couldn't help but think of like the pop-up of like fried chicken places. And like when Popeye's had their spicy chicken sandwich, like all of a sudden, like all these celebrities are going there and like, and you know, and, and this idea of like, we want to eat that too. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, it's like, uh, or like when Doritos made their uh, Taco Bell uh, you know, taco shell. Like, it's like, oh, we, like everyone go, like this idea of like, we'll, we'll get down the, we'll, we'll have that, you know, let's, let's have, be bad and have this thing. Oh, wait, have I not told you ever, have I not, have I never gone onto a rant with you about mac and cheese? No. Mac and cheese on menus makes me so fucking angry. Oh because, my gosh, go oh, for it. I it makes it. me thrilled because as a oh. parent, I'm like, thank God there's some my kids can eat. Every time I see like mac and cheese that has like lobster or bacon, I just want to be like, fuck you. We're adults. Like, yeah. I want to eat adult food. And there's something so infantilizing and patronizing about fancy mac and cheese. It's just something but that shouldn't th- exist. But this is the and, shit that we embrace. But, that, but that's the same thing. I feel like fancy mac and cheese with lobster and bacon, which was a thing I saw at this 24 menu. 99 And I told my boyfriend yeah. I would break up with him if we spent $25 on fucking yeah. lobster mac and cheese. I did not say I'd break up with them. I never did that. Sure, but, sure. But still, my point about lobster mac and cheese is that I'm deeply opposed to it. No, but I agree. But it's the idea of like, let's get down in the muck. Let's like, let's, yeah. you know, and I love that idea that like, and it's, and it's not even viewed. It's not like, it's not a bad thing. Cause like, I keep on going back to the idea, like the Park family, they're not bad people, right? They're not bad people. They're not firing him because he has that smell, you know? And in many respects, they're paying them overtime. They're inviting, you know, making sure they go to the party. Like, And like, do they like them for the false pretenses? Sure. But um, I don't know. I just think it's so interesting that in a community or this Hollywood community where it is everyone who's giving them these awards are those people who live in the beautiful houses yeah. and, you know, that that don't understand that other 
you know, other side of it, like this, you know, the, um, the ghosts in the machine, like, you know, like that, that we live in, we live in that culture. I mean, Hollywood is that culture from, you know, the gardeners and the tutors and the, and the nannies and, and all the, and even the fucking DoorDash and Postmates drivers, like, you know, it's, it, we like, this is a world that's full of that. And I love that idea that you can watch this movie and not feel, uh, not feel like put off by it. Not like, well, that's not me, you know, like, yeah. It's true, but even the woman, remember at the Oscars, there was that woman who was the last woman to speak? Mm-hmm. And her name was Mickey Lee. And she oh, kind of yeah, came she out, was amazing, they, they were turning yeah. up the show, and she's like, let me talk, let me talk, let me talk. I mean, she's the woman who produced this film. She's the woman who backed this so strongly. And she is not even just the parks. She's like the uber, 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 uber parks. Mm. I mean, she's the granddaughter of the Samsung family. Wow. Like, she oversees, I think it's been estimated to be between like a four to six billion dollar media empire. I don't want to make fun of a billionaire for putting this out into the universe, but it is funny that it also takes billionaires to get this movie out into the universe. Yeah. You know, and that reminds me of something that Bong said about this film. He said, this is a film, it's a comedy without clowns, a tragedy without villains, all leading to a violent tangle and a headlong plunge down the stairs. You are all invited to this unstoppably fierce, tragic comedy. And I just love that idea of like it... It is everything that you expect without the normal elements of what you expect from those genres in a way. Oh, gosh. I mean, that's kind of my favorite sort sort of film is a really dark comedy like this that ties you in knots. And you see that so much in his filmmaking. I mean, when you first get can we should we be talking about the basement? What do you think? Oh, absolutely. Is yeah. Basement talk. Open Base, let's do it. Yeah. OK, so. At the exact midpoint, I actually timed this when I rewatched it. At mm. the exact midpoint of the film, literally to the minute, the film takes this twist where you realize that underneath this rich house that this that the poor family, the Kims, has been jockeying for position with the Parks, there's a whole second secret family living underneath it. And it's the exiled housekeeper who they, you know, poisoned with peach fuzz, and her husband, um, who's been living in the basement for four years because he has creditors after him and he can't be seen above ground. Because he had a cake store, which I love this idea that yeah. he like he had such a simple, like a dream. It's like this artistic, like the idea of a cake store felt to me so um, pure and, 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 and kind of like, oh, he, he wanted his dream and his dream fell apart and now he's exiled. Like he had one shot to make it and that was it. And that was it. And I feel like there's even a throwaway line really earlier in the film where the Kim father worked at a bakery too, you know, mm-hmm. and they have these parallel lives where they should have a lot in common. And yeah. yet they. Well, that's what makes that whole segment so damning is because yeah. they immediately take the high road. They become, they become the parks in that situation. They become the Kims. They look down on them. And I was wondering if any of this is inspired by Bong's idea of like, you have one shot and you may not make it. Because like, his first film was not well-received at all. And he thought he would never make another movie again. And I think we've all been in that position of like, if this doesn't work, like what happens to me? And this, and, that, and that's what we're kind of seeing with this guy. We, we, we thought we saw the bottom with the Kims, but we really see the bottom with, uh, with the housekeeper and her husband. Yeah, the literal, literal bottom. And all this concrete and all of this green lighting it feels suddenly like you've gone into a horror film. He literally is a machine down there because there's this automated light that comes on in the house. Like as you walk up the stairs, the lights go boom, 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 boom. And he's controlling that. He is literally like one of those animals in the Flintstones that go, eh, it's a living, you know? Um, and like, and and he takes a pride in it. And it's, 
it's 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 such a, a mindfuck because there's something like really lovely about the sense that he and is an enamored with Mr. Park. He's a fan of Mr. Park and he's doing such a menial task, but he loves it. I mean, there, there's so much going on there. Cause yeah. there's a, there's a, a thing of like, get him out of there. Of course he shouldn't be there. But then there's also like, he wants to be there, you know, he worships Mr. Park. Yeah. And that's where this film is so dark is it's the two poorest families who have everything to lose and hate each other. Whereas they, they worship the people in charge. They're not fighting the target and they're not fighting the money. They're yeah, fighting for each, each other, other because yeah. they only have that one foothold at all into having any sort of a better life, you know? And the, the exiled maid who is reintroduced in the film, you know, through the camera where she's outside in the rain. You know, there's mm. so many images of people just being wet and sad and pathetic. And she's got these big owlish glasses on. And when she's revealed. She looks so dis like uh, yeah. discombobulated we see her and she's the picture of perfection you know so uh, beautifully yeah. creased and she's even mistaken for being the homeowner yes. the very first time the teen boy sees her and now she tries this language you know on the family on the kim family she's like two fellow workers we are fellow workers trying for this moment of unity and it's and as soon as the power flips back again and she gets the control because she has the secret video of them, she immediately is like, don't call me sis, you fucking bitch. Well, I love that idea. Like, hey, sis, hey, sis. Like, there's like this, I I love it. And then you go into this other idea. And this is, you know, being afraid of, we should be afraid of poor people to a certain, or economy class or whatever you want to call it, because they have nothing to lose, right? And then we have everything to lose. And that's what you're kind of seeing. It's like this moment where they could they could upend everything because why? What's what? What you know? What do they have? And there's an interesting thought. Uh, this this quote that uh, our producer Josh found. This is actually really interesting. Um, that Joseph Kahn wrote. He said that I think that this is a parable about rich South Korea's fears about reunification with poor North Korea. I think what's so interesting about that is that that fear, and that's a fear that we're going, we're dealing with a lot with immigration in our country. Like, well, wait, we we don't want people that uh, are poorer than us, and we don't want this, but yet we don't want to do those jobs either. But like, there's a lot of like, but this idea of like, well, what, are we going to have to take care of them? Or and you know, that I don't know. I thought that was really interesting. I don't know if that's something that he's even thinking about, but I couldn't help but think about that when the housekeeper does the 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 news the news report. Right. She likens this video she has. That proves that the Kim family are a bunch of imposters to having to being a North Korean missile. Right. I mean, Joseph Kahn is so smart. If people haven't seen Bodied, I love Bodied. Mm. That is a mean, mean, mean movie, but it is terrific. And I, and what I also love about that scene, though, is this couple, you know, the ex-housekeeper and her hidden husband, he says to his wife, no one can imitate North Korean leaders like you. And they have this lovely bond. Oh, I love like, that. Yeah. They're, they're a deeply in love couple as well. And... I really love how much this film takes a couple seconds to show them slow dancing in a flashback. I love that. To show that these are real people too and humanize them just enough to really make it so painful when you see the man with his face all bloody because he's been morse coding the light switches. What I liked about that too is they also showed how the poorer they are, the more civil they were. You know, the Kim family, when they get the run of the house, they're kind of partying. They're getting drunk. They're Mm. taking baths. They're sleeping in the bed, they're reading diaries, they're doing all this kind of very intrusive living in the house where when you see that moment, they're just simply basking in the sun and they're dancing. It's so, they're the least people that you should fear. And you get almost a duplication of that shot in one of the ending scenes where the son fantasizes going back to the house Mm. and that if he could just see his dad again, 
And you have that image of like the sun and the dead hugging in the sunshine. Like if you could just have that sunshine and just have that grass. But that's not stuff that they get when they're in the basement. You know, you get the sound, like the first time the teenage boy shows up at the rich person's house, he's walking up those stairs of that like really gray, slatted, almost medieval looking outside. And then suddenly you hear these birds and these leaves. I mean, the sound design here is gorgeous. You hear this nature come in. And in a way, they just want the same nature that should be on the earth for everybody. Yeah, well, it, it, it's sort of like this idea of like you're going from the, you're escaping the city into this beautiful oasis, you know? And, and I think it also represents how the rich people portray themselves or how they live. I've never been on, I haven't been on a subway in years. You know, the, the mother says like, I don't interact in the city. I live in the city. I hold this property in the city. I have the most beautiful part. Like I remember when I lived in New York City, I lived across the street from Gramercy Park and Gramercy Park has this very unique distinction, which is it is a locked park. You cannot get into it. It's a beautifully cultivated, gorgeous park that is just about the size of a block. Uh, it's in the middle. It, you know, it's hard to describe, but it's a little, it's a little cute little park and you need to have a key. The only people who have a key, the people who visit the hotel, the people who live in the Gramercy Park place or the people who are in this like women's, like basically people who surround the park. That's the key is only given out to them. And I remember just living so close to that and being like, oh, why can't I go in there and, and waiting nearby and trying to get in when someone would open it to get out. And it, it was, you could see into it, but it felt so cut off as it was just like something that only the rich people had a key to or had access to. Um, and I don't know. I think there's, there's so many examples of that. While we're still talking and thinking about nature, then there is something lovely in the fact that the housekeeper herself gets buried in the yard. You mm. know, she dies there, but at least she's put in the – it's – oh, it's. I mean, it's a silver lining. It's gray and terrible. But, I mean, when the daughter dies, she's put in this, like, mausoleum where – Again, mean, they make under concrete. Underground yeah. in a tiny box where Bong Joon-ho makes a point – of, you know, having somebody be mopping the floor with a giant machine while she's there. There's no loveliness for her. I mean, symbolism is all over this movie. I mean, on your next watch of this film, just look out for lines. The lines of this movie are amazing. I mean, you will see the lines that separate them all over, whether it's uh, wires, whether it's uh, the, like the way that the house is constructed. There's always lines separating the top and the bottom. Yeah, I mean, what I would pay attention to, too, is like the placement of the door to the basement, when it shows up, where it is in the frame, how it's always there looming, dividing people. Mm. And one of my favorite tiny bits of symbolism in the film is the second that the young son first walks into the rich kid's house, what you see everywhere is signs of violence because the the kid that they're worried about is it might be schizophrenic because Da Sung, he's been leaving these arrows all over the house. He is in the background of the first scene attacking the housekeeper with a fake plastic hatchet. Oh. And you have to think that Bong Joon-ho lacing in this imagery of Native Americans, you know, that's definitely not accidental. And he's saying something, and I don't know if I know yet what he's saying, but the, his continual use throughout the film, he must know enough of American history to know that that is resonant for us. Yeah. The idea of a people who have been trampled upon, who don't have access to their land anymore. And I love that he's reaching his hand really across the Pacific and saying, like, I see enough of your culture that there's also that laced in here for you. I totally agree with that. You know, so Bong Joon-ho actually, uh, as a director, he's in, he's known for being like incredibly methodical. Like he does these really intense storyboards. Mm. I mean, they've been described as being like fully bound books. Like he has drawn out the movie. He says they're like manga, really. So wow. you feel like you're looking exactly what the movie is going to be. 
he did uh, a tiny like short video for the New York Times where he talked about his directing style. And I want to play a little bit of that as he talks over the scenes. Like the Mission Impossible, the TV series. When I was a little kid, I was a huge fan. And this is some kind of nerdy family version of Mission Impossible. Yeah. I, I love that, you know, now watching it with him narrating it, it's fascinating because that scene is very much cut like that. It's really great. It is. And the, the, one of my favorite ones that he talks over, too, is he talks about the scene where the dad um, is training himself to get the housekeeper fired. And he's, like, practicing his speech about discovering yes. that she has tuberculosis. I remember in that scene, it's his younger son who's coaching him through this. And I want to let uh, Dr. Bong talk about it for a second. But he has this line in here that he says in Korean that I'll repeat back in English at the end because it's really funny. It adds this whole other dimension for the Korean audience. Kind of manipulator. He, he controlled everything. And he has a plan. When they rehearse, it looks like a kind of filmmaking. It feels like a son is director, the father is actor. 그런 데서 오는 어떤 약간 웃긴 유머의 느낌도 있죠. 그리고 이제 리얼 라이프에서는 저 아버지는 대배우고 그 아들은 되게 신인 라이징 하는 배우인데 라이징 하는 배우가 무슨 뭐. It, what he's saying after that is that it's extra funny because you know. Sung Kang-ho is an incredibly famous actor in Korea, whereas the kid playing the teenage son is this brand new kid that people are not aware of. And so what he says in Korean is he says, it's as if Ansel Elgort is teaching Al Pacino. Oh, wow. <laughs> I think that, you know, this movie is, is so full of metaphors. We talk about this a lot, but the, the, the biggest one to me is after that insane night where the family comes home, we have the sex scene, they, you know, they find the people... Uh, under the stairs, everything is going on. They're in a world of shit. And then they literally are in a world of shit. And it's such a crazy idea that the entire street, you know, backs up into their house and their toilets exploding and they're, and they are covered in, in shit. I mean, they are just, they're waiting and shit and, and what they choose to take from the house, what's important to them, you know, the metal, uh, the mother's metal, the, and then, but that rock comes up, that scholar stone and, you know, all the things, that's what they, that's what they take. And, uh, I don't know. I just love that throughout consistently throughout it. It's like, it's, it just, it's showing you time and time again, everything is so kind of beautifully done. Yeah. And I kept thinking in that sequence, you know, not only does the flickering hallway shot remind me a little bit of Titanic, mm-hmm. um, but it made me think of Katrina. You know, it yeah. made me think of how that is such a tradition in so many countries, that it's the poorest neighborhoods that are affected by natural disasters, by too much rain. And that we have these images on the news, you know, from America, from all over the world of like people on homemade rafts figuring out how to how to at least survive and go get dry. Yeah. And that like... For them in that moment, you see them in all of the sewage, just even the idea of being clean enough not to have the dad, the park dad, wrinkle his nose at them seems impossible. I, I mean, that's the one thing I'm always kind of confused at. Like, where did they take these showers? That's why I think the movie kind of exists in this like kind of heightened world that he was able to get there. Everyone was able to get there. And, you know, in the one of the final shots of the movie is returning the scholar stone to the water, clean water, like uh, – you know, forest water, the most pure stream. Um, and there is this idea of like, like washing away or, you know, like releasing yourself. I don't know. Something that the water throughout this movie is such a big, such a big, big deal.
whenever I think about his direction here, it just knocks me out of the water because he's telling you so many things through the visuals that are so subtle. You know, even in that futurized dream vision where the son might come back and be rich enough to own the house and finally does look like he fits in there when he's been really insecure about it. It's little stuff. He's lightened his hair by that point, you know, and there's this idea of like, got to look a little more Western, got to lighten it up, you know, that a German family moves into the house when this family leaves. You know, it's, it's nudging you to think so much about, you know, just a giant spillover world of of western worship that is not cool well i mean and and and, or that is loaded with a lot of other meanings that are unpleasant and but you go to this idea that you open up this movie on them trying to connect with the outside world with technology right and then at you know the whatsapp and then the last shot of the movie is him trying to connect with his dad through the oldest one of the oldest forms of communication there is this morse code like this idea of technology in a in a weird way it it makes us closer but kind of farther apart and like the the only thing left in this moment of connection is this father and son through the old you know the only way they can kind of connect now is this rejection of technology it's a rejection of the material objects the rege- you know it's like there's there's a lot of that like they you know they reject the stone they reject the technology they you know um although he also has to say i'm going to reject things like love and happiness to make money because money is more important because money is the only way I can get my dad back. Mm. You know, he has to double down on that. I mean, I had to stop rewatching it. You know, he wakes up, the son wakes up in the hospital and he just keeps laughing yeah. because he says, nobody looks like they're the roles they're supposed to be. You don't look like you're a cop. You yeah. don't look like you're a nurse. And he's cracking up. And I had this thought like, oh, this is the Joker movie. Like what if yeah. he is the Joker? I love that idea. Like, there, I mean, the end is so kind of brutal because you know that he's never going to do that. He's never it, – the the deck is stacked against him. The only chance he had to maybe get that is if he didn't get too greedy. Like, you know, he's you know he's now not a convicted felon. He's out on probation, but he's never – chances are he probably won't be able to hold on to that sub-basement. I mean, with two members of the family gone, that's two less incomes in that world. You know, where does that character go in, in a couple months? You know, it's 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 sadder than – than anything I think of. I mean, you know, it's... it's. Uh... It is sad. You know, in Korea, they've been having this conversation about the have and the have-nots, and, and their terms for it is they call it gold spoons and dirt spoons. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're born into a wealthy family, you're born with this gold spoon that's, like, unbreakable and fantastic. Whereas a dirt spoon, I mean, what is a dirt spoon? You can't even... A dirt spoon doesn't yeah. pick up anything. A dirt yeah. spoon is unusable. I mean, if you want to, like, talk about, like, in- income inequality in Korea, I mean, right now, the way that it's divided is that the top 10% of South Koreans have 66% of the nation's wealth. You know, the top 10%, 66 and the poor entire half of the population has just 2% of the wealth, which is awful. And yet, you know, when you look at the numbers here in the States, it's even worse. I mean, in America, our top 10 has 70% of the wealth, and our bottom 50% has 1%. And so it's really more dire in America. And, and I mean, adding to that, things like South Korea has universal health care. South Korea has paid family leave. I mean, South Korea has universal early childhood education. Like, South Korea has a lot of social justice things that we don't have here. And I wish we were making movies this angry, to be honest. Well, I, I wish that, we, yeah. we need this here. Instead, we're making movies about toxic masculinity, which I think is – it's sort of um, – it's a top layer, but beneath it is the the story. Because I think that the Joker, I think, wants to be telling a story about, you know, how we aren't taking care of our people and we're letting society run amok. But it it comes out a little bit more vague where this kind of cuts right 
to the the heart of it. I just was in Telluride doing this comedy festival, and it's amazing that Telluride, a very small town, five block town, most people can't even live there anymore because it's all just taken over by this 1%. People who don't need to rent out their house, they can own these condos and they just eat up all the land. And it's like, that's something that you would hear in San Francisco, but now it's happening in a small, not even the most popular ski town in Colorado. It's, you know, it's, it just, it's happening more and more, uh, over again. I, 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 uh, I don't know. It's a very eye-opening. It, it's a very eye-opening movie. I think it that this is, is this and is it, why we like like it so much. And I have to say, it makes me kind of sad, you know, because when South Koreans realized that their president was corrupt, they had protests in the street over and over and over again until the president was impeached. Right. And I mean, that should be a. Oh, I feel lazy compared. <laughs> you know. I know we've been talking a lot about the movie, but I want to talk about how this movie was received. And there was one person who got on the front line of Parasite's trip to the Oscars, uh, and it's one of your friends. So let's talk to one of my absolute favorite people and absolute favorite film critics. His name is Justin Chang. He writes for the LA Times. You might also know his voice when you hear it from NPR. It's very, he has one of the loveliest voices in the business. Yes. And I adore him. Um, and he really put Parasite on my radar when after Can he Instagrammed his new shirt. It said Bong Daor on it with the beautiful Can golden palms on both sides. It is also a phrase that I believe he coined on Twitter because Justin is the absolute pun master. His puns are evil and good and brilliant, and they make me love and hate him all at the same time. But with that said, Justin Chang, welcome to the show. So, Justin, you were at Can when Parasite premiered. I mean, what was the buzz there? The buzz was through the roof for the movie when it played finally. I mean, it played at the last, I don't know if it was the last day, but it was one of the last films to screen in the competition at Cannes. And it's kind of funny how this whole season long, you know, we've been talking a lot about Parasite and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in terms of like the best picture conversation, because they both premiered the same night in Cannes. And, um, and it's kind of funny, almost foreshadowing what was to come, you know, once upon a time in Hollywood, uh, which I liked a lot, um, you know, was pretty well received, uh, kind of mixed, but, but overall the reaction was very positive. And then parasite kind of came along. I think it was a late screening around like 10 PM or something. And it just sort of blew the roof off the palais and nobody was, it's not that nobody was talking about the, the Tarantino movie, but it completely upstaged the Tarantino in a lot of ways. Like, I think the only one film has won both the Palme d'Or and the Best Picture yeah. Oscar, the Best Picture before. Yeah, it's, um, and that was Marty, you know, like 60-something years ago. Wow. So, you know, which was an American movie. So that was a time when, you know, they, they gave it to an American film. And then years later, it's like, here's this Korean film that comes along. I feel like you have an interesting insight into the year of Bong Joon-ho wandering around, doing these things with the translator by his side. Because yeah. one of your best friends happened to be the translator for Nene for The Farewell. It went through this yeah. whole award cycle as a translator. I mean, what have you learned yeah. about the translator award complex? What's <laughs> happening? Yeah, I mean, I've gotten to say hello a few times to Sharon Choi, who is um, who is uh, uh, Director Bong's interpreter this whole season. And she just wrote a great piece in variety kind of sharing her experiences which people should read in her own words and then my yeah my as amy was talking about my my best one of my best friends eugene uh eugene sun who is uh who's translating for jiao shu jen for the farewell um it's a lot of work i mean it's just i and 
Uh, he could speak to this better than I could, of course, because I hadn't had the experience, but just going to one event after another, some events more tiresome and longer than others. So, um, but I think uh, just from what I've observed from, from both of them, and I, I can't speak for I can't speak for either of them. Certainly not for Sharon, although I did have the pleasure of um, doing a Q and A with Li, Ch- Li Changdong for Burning that she also translated just as skillfully as she has been doing for for Bong for Parasite. Um, I think I've just noticed they feel completely swept up in this experience alongside the filmmakers, and both Sharon and Eugene, by the way, are filmmakers themselves too. And so um, it's I think it's. Uh, um, it's an interesting way into the industry. It's not, it's not, of course, the job that they want to do forever. I mean, they are filmmakers, and that is their, their love and their calling, and it's why they, but it's also why they found themselves in a position to speak so well for filmmakers and on behalf of, of films. I mean, Eugene is a huge cinephile as well, so it was pretty exciting. Yeah, he was right there when Aquafina won the Golden Globe for Best Actress, <laughs> and, you know, and the, the whole farewell table just kind of erupted. Um, so. I have to admit, I screamed when I saw him on TV at the Golden Globes. I was like, Eugene! So cool. <laughs> Finally, a reason to watch the Golden Globes. You know? <laughs> um, <laughs> no. Well, let me ask you but a question yeah. about why this Oscar win is important for, you know, obviously yeah. we've talked a lot about Oscars So White, and uh, but this is even different than that because you, you basically have like a murderer's row of yeah. best foreign picture. Like they're, they're over there. Yeah. Every one of them is great. Uh, and they're all, you know, and they're competing for one, you know, and it's like, and this, and this movie goes over here. Like, what, what do you think that means? You know, what, what's the importance of that? Yeah. Yeah. It is different from Oscar So White. And, and if I'm completely honest, just speaking for myself, this actually matters more to me than that. I mean, I want to see greater diversity and inclusion among, especially the acting nominees. And, and we've seen, we've been fortunate to see that in recent years, uh, more so than this one. But for me, you know, I, I described it as like one of the last glass ceilings in my uh, when I wrote about Parasite winning and this this idea that a movie made in another country would never win Best Picture has finally fallen. And one of the you know, I started watching the Oscars, I think, in like 94, 95. And, you know, in 2000, I was rooting really hard for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. <laughs> so, um, you know, um, Ang Lee's movie, which uh, which was, you know a huge sensation um and you know but people didn't think it was going to win and of course it didn't um because it had and in some ways that foreign language film oscar now international feature is sort of but the achilles heel the stumbling block it's it's basically the the consolation prize and once they give it that it's like well there's no reason to give them give it best give it best picture as well and you know people are upset people are upset that parasite won both and to me it's like that's awesome. Yeah. I'm sort of like, I'd love to share it. it. I mean, because we figured out how to make that not happen though in LAFCA. Totally. Yeah. I mean, at LAFCA, you know, we do it, we give it to another film, which I have mixed feelings about too. And in like the National Society of Film Critics, which Amy and I are also part of, if if a non-English language film wins Best Picture, we just don't give a foreign language film award, which I actually think makes a little bit more sense. But I just, I don't know, I'm still, I haven't come down still from the high of, of that Sunday night and still thinking about it. And, you know, Parasite is an interesting choice. It's certainly not the movie I would have guessed would have been the one to, to conquer it. Um, because when you think about, like, I, I just think about, you know, I think about Godard, I think about Fellini, I think about Bergman, whose Cries and Whispers was nominated, uh, you know, years ago and didn't lost the sting. And if you look at the, just the history of international cinema, if, if the Academy had been this open 
to movies made in other countries, movies shot in other languages, other types of movies. If, you know, if a French New Wave film had won Best Picture, I mean, can you imagine just how much richer the Academy's history would be, how much less we'd actually be able to make fun of them and the really shitty choices that they make? It's like, I just, you know, it's like, this is, it's like we've been given this little taste of what their future could actually look like. 92 years too late, but, you know, I'll take it. Yeah, I and, and I I almost think that even equally impressive is is the screenwriting uh, award too. It's like yeah, you know, it's like because it, that's a little bit harder to even wrap your head around. You know, it's like uh, I just yeah. uh, it, this movie really. Amy and I were talking about it. I think there's something so universal about this story, and I think it can live forever because. I think everybody, no yeah. matter who you are, and especially in Hollywood and these award shows where we, uh, or especially the people giving out these awards are the Park family for all intents and purposes, uh, they're still looking at themselves as the Kim family because there's always someone one step ahead. Mm-hmm. And there's something so universal about that idea of just wanting to get ahead. And, and you can you can see all the sides of it. I just think it's, that's what I think is so uh, amazing about this film and unlike un- unlike any other movie that was even nominated this year you know or even in recent year i don't know what that what has that kind of uh thematic yeah. journey to it yeah it's it's also just interesting how you know the academy actually has been spreading the wealth a lot lately and they like to split for example picture and director and, and screenplay as well for parasite to win all three of those is really rare i mean we've been talking about it all season as kind of this underdog and when you think like oh it was actually this one of the strongest, most decisive uh, winners we've had in some time. And, you know, the universality of it, I mean, you, you said this very well. It's like, yeah, the, the, the class dynamics that are in play in the movie sort of weirdly mirror the class dynamics of the Academy and how the movie has basically, as the, as the Kim family does, subverted all of that in a really poetically fitting kind of way. I, I don't know what it is. I think it's, you know, it does, it's like, our Academy members really responding like in a powerful, personally convicted way to the themes of wealth inequality. Probably not, you know? right? <laughs> Probably not like resonating on that level. I think it's basically just that that movie. I mean, this is and this is sort of the singularity of Parasite. Why I don't think we're going to see its example repeated a whole lot in the future is because that movie is doing something. It is operating completely on its own. Like it is. Doing some, it is completely doing its own thing, and that own thing just happens to. If we're looking at the Venn diagram of where art cinema, genre cinema, and academy-friendly cinema overlap, Parasite fits all of those just perfectly. And it is doing it's it's telling a story that just keeps surprising you. Um, I'm reminded, God, who was it? And you guys will help know this. Like, was it Billy Wilder? Who I'm going to misquote this. Um, whoever said, you know, let the academy, let the viewer add up. Two and two, and they'll love you forever. I'm, I'm totally butchering the quote. I can't. No, I know what you're I saying. I don't. Yeah. This. No. Yeah. I'm, I. <laughs> I, I, I should just scrap, just scrap this part. But it's like, <laughs> you know, the the movie does, I think, surprise you and flatter you in just the right ways because it makes you feel smart as you catch on to what's going on. I mean, it has that sort of brilliant, surprising puzzle box structure that I don't think Hollywood actually even does that well anymore or does that often, and. He just pulled that off with such virtuosity that, uh, I mean, I think that is, you know, as much as anything, what they are responding to in that movie. Well, then I like that it is 
unreplicatable, that it's not like I'm a giant World War One movie, because maybe that means we get more interesting things from everybody. It just says, be interesting, do what you really think is great, don't try to win awards, and maybe you win awards. Dun, dun, dun. And it is interesting. Like, I'm, I am curious to see what the parasite effect will be. I mean, are we just going to get a lot of really crappy, mediocre uh, movies with that are trying to tell this kind of story? Or are we just going to see some, like, tokenistic casting of Korean and other Asian actors in movies where they wouldn't be ordinarily? Um, are we trying going to see just, I don't know, mostly white cast, you know, riffs on, on a parasite kind of story? I don't know. I mean, hopefully we're getting going to get some great stuff along with all that but uh, i don't know well and then as, as we're leaving you i have one final question you know there's been such uh, an excitement about korean cinema there's been excitement about uh bong to a lot of people yeah. who don't know him are there any like what one or two films would you recommend to our audience like to either you know in korean cinema or uh yeah. you know something else that somebody should see like that they may not take a chance on that could affect them in the same way that this movie has kind of affected so many people anything jump out to yeah you know it's funny. I will recommend, I think I'll recommend two Korean movies and I don't think Amy will be surprised by either of them, but, um, cause they're both directed by, uh, a director I mentioned earlier, Lee Chang Dong, who oh, is, good. Uh, I was hoping you'd say this. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and those movies are secret sunshine, um, which, uh, played at can 2007 and then burning, which uh, came out, uh, just last year and was my actual favorite movie of last year. Um, but all his movies are, pretty wonderful and you won't go wrong with any of them but uh secret sunshine is um a devastating drama about uh faith and religion and personal tragedy i saw this movie at can this movie kind of changed my life i i think of it as a religious experience myself um i truly sometimes think about my cinematic development as like pre-secret sunshine and post-secret sunshine <laughs> so that movie and it's on criterion it's very easy to see now um it's it's I, it's a masterpiece and i would say the same thing about burning which came out last year um features terrific performances including one by stephen yun um it's a psychological and romantic triangle very brooding thriller um you know two korean movies have very little in common with parasite and Bong's type of movie, you know, so it's, it's, I don't want to be reductive. And, you know, I think there's been a, in the wake of Parasite success, there's been a lot of lists of Korean movies you should see. And, and I think that's great and wonderful and, and to be encouraged. But, um, you know, the world of Korean cinema, which I, again, do not consider myself an expert in at all, is as rich and as varied as American cinema is. But those are just the two that have resonated the most with me, um, in addition to, in addition to Bong's movies and, you know, in addition to, you know, things that are, you know, pretty high profile, like The Handmaiden by Park Chan-wook, um, you know, and, and there's a lot. I mean, just the explosion of talent in Korean cinema over the past, I mean, just even going to festivals, you've seen this. I mean, you see every, you know, and, and just every midnight movie, there's a program, there's, you know, um, something like The Chaser, for example, which, have you guys seen The Chaser? I have heard of that one. Chaser. Or, or Ch The Chaser uh, by Na Hong Jin. The Chaser and The Wailing and um, The Yellow Sea, those are three just really, uh, just almost unwatchably brutal, but really brilliant uh, movies that, you know, make you know, Parasite look like The Sound of Music, just in terms of just their <laughs> sheer intensity and violence. I mean, they are, so yeah, there's just, it's, those are just um, just scratching the surface. Those are off the top of my head. 
Well, this has been fantastic chatting with you. Thank you so much for giving us this time. Uh, it was lovely. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be on a podcast with people who are, well, with you guys, because you guys are awesome anyways, um, <laughs> and pro-parasite, but mainly you guys. Oh, this is <laughs> great. Thank you. Thanks again to Justin Chang from the LA Times, also from NPR, for coming on and talking about Parasite. And I really want to back up Burning. Oh, my gosh. There is a lot of – if you want another version, smaller-scale murdery version of uh, the economic tension in Korea, that is also a great one. And if you want to hop over to Japan, there's another movie from last year that I loved called Shoplifters by Korea Oh, Eda. that movie is fantastic. It's fantastic. It's about another family that, who's incredibly poor – kind of an assembled family. You realize mm-hmm. that this family is not at all what you think they are. And I won't say anything more than that. It's, it's also so great. good. Amy, did you know that Bong not only wrote this movie or co-wrote this film, but he wrote the lyrics uh, for the song in the co- closing credits? No. Yes. Uh, he wrote the lyrics for Soju One Glass. It's the first song in the closing credits. It's performed by uh, the lead actor, Wook Sik Choi. And it's the first time that uh, Bong had written lyrics and he encourages everyone to sing it at karaoke. And I know that you like karaoke, so uh, we wanted to maybe play a little bit of uh, of Bong's uh, lyrics here. So I don't know, you know, that, that, you know, look, like I, I feel like now I feel like maybe he should have gotten nominated for a best uh, song as well. Well, if you give me enough sojo, I'll sing it. Anyway. <laughs> um, let's end with a question that we always ask. Uh, obviously, there's no Simpsons yet. Um, well. Oh. Yet. Yet. No. But there is an episode of The Simpsons called Double Double Boil Boy in Trouble. And I want to play a clip of this because um, what happens in this episode is Bart realizes that there is a man, a kid who looks exactly like him, a rich kid named Simon Woosterfield. And Simon is worried that his older um, half-brother and sister are trying to take the family inheritance. So they do a swap where Bart goes and lives in the rich house and the, and the rich kid comes and lives in his house. And, it, you know, there's some similarities here, especially in this scene. Fancy party. This is like a rap video before the rappers show up. Mm. Mm. Simon, have you ever seen the family mausoleum? All the Wooster Fields will be buried here. Do you know that after a hundred years, dead bodies turn to red licorice? Whoa, let me at it. Help, let me out. I have my doubts about this licorice. I couldn't resist. It's I mean, he's trapped in it. a mausoleum. He's trapped. He's trapped inside. So did Bong steal this from The Simpsons, Amy? Uh, <laughs> call this. Justin Chang. Let's have him get an investigative uh, report on this. This is an episode where Burns, who's yeah. usually the, the face of being the mean rich person, yeah. is actually kind of nice. He shows up and he's a little... Uh, Overly nice to Simon because he's rich. You get to see what Mr. Burns is like around somebody who's equally rich. And he says, you know, I was the bullied kid in my family, too. Um, And then everybody else died and I got all the money. (laughs) And now, finally, Amy, would you put this on the AFI list? And and I know that, like, technically it can't be on the AFI list. But do you think it deserves a place on the list? I mean, honestly, if we were going to figure out how to break this open and create something new, create a new list that was open to stuff like this – 
I mean, what could be more groundbreaking than the film that broke through the Oscars' 92-year-old barrier? I, I feel like it has to be recognized simply for that fact. I mean, that fact alone should allow this movie to be on a list like this because it is showing that it transcends. You know, it's not an American film, but why do we need um, – why does it have to be the best American film? It could just be the best film. And I think that that may be part of the list that – we want to be a part of, you know, a, a list that is celebrating diversity and not right. just one type of story or one type of perspective. Yeah. I mean, API doesn't stand for American. Exactly. Um, well, Amy, it's been lovely chatting with you about this film. Yes, yeah, but fun talking about something new. I know. And uh, let's go back, though, now to uh, another type of film that talks about something that hasn't even really been touched on that much on the AFI list, which is war. Uh, uh, Back in the war saddle again For uh, the film MASH Which I've never seen Never ever seen MASH It's another Robert Altman film Which I'm very excited about But um, I don't know why I I think as a kid I just was always very Like down on MASH Just was never super fun to me So um, I'm excited to watch this version Because I've heard it's very good Interesting. Amy says nothing. <laughs> wow. All right. I'm in for a treat. All right. Well, how about this? You don't have to have seen Mesh yet to know that it is a film with a lot of nicknames, right? Mm-hmm. There's Hot Lips Houlihan. Hawkeye. Hawkeye, Trapper John. Everybody has a fun nickname. Radar. Yes. I think people should give Paul a nickname. Just me, not you? <laughs> oh, how dare you. All right. Yeah, fine, fine. All right, so just be me. All right, so call in and give me my MASH nickname. You can call in at 747-666-5824 and give me a, a good MASH nickname. All right, be creative about it. I uh, I kind of dread this, and uh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm willing to accept it. I'll take one for the team. I'll take it for the spoolers. Um, all right, Amy, we will see you next week for MASH. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.